Hi, this is Kimberly Kleiman Lee, executive coach, performance consultant, and host of the Do I Dare podcast. If you're a leader who wants to inspire, empower, and raise the leadership bar, then you have come to the right place, my friend. Here you will get access to powerful yet practical solutions that elevate your performance and dissolve roadblocks. Do you dare to lead in a way that moves the needle and scales the impact? Then let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Do I Dare podcast. I'm Kimberly Kleiman Lee, your host. We have been busy. I don't know about you all, but boy, work is sure back and with a vengeance, um, which is uh, all good on our end, at least. But my friends in supply chain are sure having a, a difficult time. I've been entertaining quite a few uh, calls from old friends and former colleagues, each trying to figure out this leadership stuff, especially those who are still in crisis mode. Don't forget, we are still in the midst of a bit of a pandemic. They're trying to figure this out either for themselves as they take on new roles or for their new company. And I love the conversations. Many of them have moved on to big leadership roles in new companies where the concept of leadership might be maybe vaguely familiar to their new employees, perhaps not very well defined, or perhaps solely dependent on technical ability, where the folks who do are the folks who lead. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it does not. What we end up discussing though is not leadership, but culture. And a good leadership curriculum can't possibly replace a vague or challenging culture. So based on the volume of all of these calls and conversations, I thought I'd make culture, company culture, the topic of today's podcast. To this day, I am most often asked about GE's culture. Like many large, global, long-tenured companies, GE had and still has a strong culture and quite a few subcultures as well, if I'm honest. I've spent the last several years reading, studying, and exploring key concepts and components about culture and worked that into a service we now call the Culture Edit. It's one of our most popular consulting services, and I'd be happy to unpack portions of that to you if it serves you and where you're at in your, uh, your career. I bet you've heard these phrases, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That one's by Peter Drucker, pretty famous leadership theorist, or culture is the behavior you reward and punish by Jocelyn Goldfein. Or my personal favorite, the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behavior the leader is willing to tolerate. That one's by two Indiana State University professors, Grutner and Whitaker. Love that one. We participate in various cultures throughout our lives. You guys know that. As a matter of fact, that too was the topic of deep discussion in some of the leadership classes I taught at GE. For example, I taught a class each month for probably three years that hosted 80 leaders from around the world. We were together for a couple of weeks uh, at a time. On average, about 25 countries were represented in that room. And also in that room were various experiences, education levels sometimes five generations of employees, some who grew up in legacy GE and others who were acquired through exciting new business ventures. It was human systems at its most complicated for sure. And the question I would almost always pose to the class, the very beginning of our journey was knowing that we all come from various backgrounds, having had various experiences and practice various customs and norms, 
which culture will win, so to speak, when we're together? Which culture determines the behaviors that we choose? Do we need to build a new culture within that class environment for those two weeks? And if so, what might they want that to be? Giving them permission to create an environment that works for them. That is what culture is all about. So many companies, especially globally um, uh, based uh, companies, face this dilemma and their employees try to perform amidst all of that confusion. If you're a part of a global company, I bet you've come across a situation where just going to greet somebody um, is, a, is a bit of a gymnastics exercise. Is it one kiss on the cheek, two kisses on the cheek, three in some cultures? Is it a handshake? Is it a bow? What do you say? How do you respond, et cetera, et cetera? Just those simple cultural norms and practices can cause people to pause before they engage in a relationship. And then you pile on all the other complexities that work cultures bring. And again, sometimes it's really difficult to know what to do, how to behave, and when you're actually meeting expectations. So before we go any further, I thought it might be worth getting a few definitions out of the way. I, being the good sociology major that I am, never thought I'd ever use my major for anything, and now it's the core of how I spend my, my uh, time every day. Um, from a social, sociology perspective, Sociology understands culture as the languages, customs, beliefs, rules, arts, knowledge, collective identities, and memories developed by members of all social groups that make their environment, their social environment, meaningful. It's how, again, people make meaning of if something is healthy, not healthy, good, bad, comfortable, uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera. To translate that into the work environment, culture is simply the shared values, belief systems, attitudes, and the set of assumptions that people in a workplace share. They leverage these things to get work done. It's kind of the, the bumpers, if you will, or the framework by which behavior is tolerated, encouraged, and rewarded. Culture is a particular way of life, of work life. For those of you who have recently changed jobs, and according to several different labor statistics, that's about 40% of us, you will find that the culture you left is not the same as the culture you're joining. And in many cases, that's a welcome change. Now, there are lots of things that create culture among humans. Some of those things are foundational in nature, non-negotiable, and have been around for years. Other contributing factors to culture change often. As you think about culture, be clear on what you want to be foundational or what you know to be foundational about your company, things that absolutely won't change, and be flexible on the elements that you want to evolve or that perhaps need to evolve for a number of reasons. I have a visual on how I break this down for my clients. You're welcome to it, of course, at KimberlyKlimanLee.com forward slash culture. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y-K-L-E-I-M-A-N-L-E-E.com forward slash culture. I'll also put that in the show notes for you, of course. For example, your enterprise values will rarely change. Oftentimes, they're based on the founder's understanding of why they even wanted to start the business in the first place. I met with Google founders a few years back, um, Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg, 
who wrote the book, How Google Works. It was a fascinating conversation. I actually had them um, hold a dialogue with some of our, our senior leaders on a, on a program. I assumed, of course, they had penned the book to help outsiders like us understand what makes them tick. But their response to our questions about why they wrote the book was really quite fascinating. They said they wrote the book for new Googlers. Those, of course, are Google employees. Their meteoric rise and incredible growth were a threat to their culture of origin. And they know uh, knew that they had to change and evolve as their company headed toward 100,000 employees, which, by the way, they had an equal number of consultants working there. But there were certain things, certain values and behaviors and passions and drives that they didn't want to compromise on. And this book was their attempt to plea to those new employees to hold those things sacred. Uh, again, I thought it was a fascinating way to try to preserve culture. As you explore this model or framework, you'll see that there are contributing factors to culture that will need to change in order to accommodate changes in a market or global impacts like a pandemic, or maybe the leaders of your organization change, or you want to evolve to become perhaps more digital, thus requiring a new skill set, both technical and mindset. When I'm asked to work with companies on their culture, often I see an over-engineering of these items with the hopes of attaining their aspirational culture faster. Humans can adapt, but not that quickly, and more importantly, not under the complex conditions that they face in a corporate environment today. The world around us is evolving at an incredible pace. That said, the human brain, specifically the basal ganglia, still operates the way it has for centuries. The basal ganglia is considered the habit brain, and it's responsible for things like emotions, pattern recognition, and the ability to evolve behavior. The prefrontal cortex, on the other hand, is responsible for making decisions. So if you want better outcomes or different behaviors, you really do have to help your humans focus on developing specific habits over time or conditioning new behavior over time. For those of you who really get into this kind of stuff, I'm going to recommend some of my favorite books on habit. There's The Power of Habit, Atomic Habits, that book's all the rage right now, and Mini Habits, which I really like. It's this whole concept Scott Halford shares around start small, start now. So all of that said was really the birth of the Culture Edit consulting product for us. You see, your aspirational culture and your actual culture might very well be in conflict with one another. So many of us well-meaning HR folks over-engineer initiatives, movements, and PowerPoints with the hopes of expediting the journey to achieving that ideal culture. And once upon a time, I put myself in that category of an over-engineer, well-meaning corporate folk, again, trying to descend upon the masses and impact behavior. So let's see if this rings a bell for you. Let's say your organization has just launched five company values and 10 leader behaviors sliced by level within your organization, like uh, individual contributor, manager, senior manager, executive leader, and so forth. And they've also added great detail by demonstrated and, and expected expertise. For example, uh, does not meet meets, exceeds expectations, and so forth. Now, if I do the back of the napkin math on this one, your organization is trying to introduce, evaluate, evolve, and therefore manage 
180 criterion for how people behave at your company. We all work for companies with these well-meaning efforts, but we rarely have the ability, the infrastructure to manage that. So again, to just go on with this little story, let's say to support all of that great new work, which probably took nine months and a task force of 12 to complete, if we're honest, you now have access to a custom assessment, learning and development interventions, and a performance rating structure that's to be used during annual performance review time. Candidly, very few organizations have, as I mentioned before, the infrastructure needed to support all of the values and behaviors we want to build in our employee community. Many organizations haven't even yet invested in their management population, and therefore these behaviors and values aren't even explained or coached or sometimes even modeled. Therefore, you get a culture by default as opposed to a culture by design. It happens all the time. Many of us, therefore, require a culture edit. We need to reduce the excess, eliminate the noise, and to design the cultures with shorter term precision. If you want to evolve your culture, there are a few core things you can do to help your humans adopt these new practices. The answers are simple, but not easy. So let's maybe start with simple. First, describe it. What would the ideal be like? Second, define it. What behaviors do you want to see in your employees and your leaders? And three, you need to condition it. This is actually the silver bullet. What practices, assessments, training, feedback mechanisms, and rewards will you put in place to ensure you get it? I've had a few conversations with clients over the years where they'll ask, what's the ROI on this class that we're putting our folks through? Well, the class is nothing more than just a class. It's exposure to knowledge and information and education. The ROI actually comes from the implementation, the practice, the application of the behaviors and, and skills learned. And that becomes, quite frankly, the responsibility of the company, the team, and the leaders, and of course, the person who went through the class. But that, my friends, is all a part of culture. Do you expect people to practice and to condition their skills in such a way uh, as to uh, move the needle forward. Dr. Paul Hersey, who's 50% uh, responsible for situational leadership, uh, has this great slogan. You guys have probably heard, practice makes perfect. Well, he says, perfect practice makes perfect. It means practice under the guise of mentorship and coaching and feedback and, and systems and that sort of thing is what really gets you to be skilled at something. And I, I couldn't agree more. Let's give a few examples of culture so that you all have a, a good assemblance of the, the variety of culture out there. Maybe I'll start a bit closer to home. I live just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the States. It's considered to be in the Midwest portion of the country. Now the Midwest itself has a very distinct culture as does the Southern part of my country. The East and West Coasts, of course have their own cultures. Our football team is called the Green Bay Packers. Um, the Packers um, for this particular team have a culture all of their own by how they dress and how they paint their face and the chants and cheers that they yell, the, the songs that they sing, and even some of the rituals that they participate in. 
throughout the, the uh, season, the football season. Uh, there's even a custom that when there's a huge snowfall, Packer fans will actually pay to shovel snow in the stadium on behalf of the uh, stadium commissioner. So again, pretty um, amazing fandom when you think about commitment to that, that culture. Harley Davidson, also just down the road from me, famous motorcycle um, company, uh, has such an amazing and tight culture of, of customers, clients, and employees that they actually have the company tattoo um, emblazoned on their skin to show their commitment to the culture. And they have all sorts of ways to demonstrate their love of that company through cultural practices and celebrations and so forth. Lowe's has a slogan, we're like family. And according to the literature and folks who work for the Lowe's company, they indeed think that that is how they would define their culture. The Ritz-Carlton, another one in the entertainment industry, says we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And that is indeed the culture that they practice and they unpack for their customers. Zoom has a happiness crew. And as you can imagine, they go around spreading happiness through various practices and celebrations at periodic times throughout their annual um, cycle. Patagonia says we're in the business to save the planet. Isn't that something? They're a clothing and outdoor uh, type retail outfit, but they're in the business to save the planet. And they were actually one of the first companies globally to close all their stores and mandate vaccinations and pay their employees during the shutdown. Pretty incredible. Intuit has a, a culture all of their own. They coined the phrase intrapreneur. They have a whole program called D for D, Design for Delight. And they use that both internally and externally. They pride themselves on deep customer empathy. They use phrases like go broad to go narrow, rapid experimentation with customers, that sort of thing. Speaking of experimentation, I'm a huge fan of IDO. It's a great marketing and PR firm. I'm probably not even giving their, their definition um, the, the due it, it's, uh, it's deserved. Um, but in this case, they have a, a book called The Little Book of IDO. You can actually um, Google it and see some examples or some pictures of it. Um, that little book preserves their culture for every new employee that comes through their, uh, their doors. Um, and this is the way that they, in essence, get people acclimated and oriented to the culture and have people bring the culture to life as they adopt new practices and protocols within, the, within their business. Um, they state their details as a reflection of where they've been, where they're going, and the values that drive their journey. That's what the authors had intended for this particular book. Uh, in the book, you'll see things like um, learn from failure or um, make a, another successful, another person successful. Uh, talk less, do more. Embrace ambiguity. These are all, again, cultural tenets that they hold near and dear, and, and they've been um, uh, this way for decades. They allow outsiders to have a peek. I took another class to IDO to not only look at their culture, but look at the way in which they work independently and together, the processes and, again, practices they have that make them so productive and so well-known in their industry. 
I'll put a couple links um, to each of these resources in the uh, show notes for those of you who want to um, investigate more. Of course, there are companies whose cultures aren't so positive, whose employment brand is overshadowed by maybe difficult work environments or perpetuated even by their leadership. I won't spend time on those examples today, but of course, just ask a couple friends, family members, or neighbors over the holidays, and you will get an earful about the culture uh, that they work in. Instead, let's focus on the impact culture has on employee engagement, which is really what this is all about. There's some amazing stuff coming out in the news uh, right now. I, I have a whole um, podcast dedicated to, to part of it, but uh, most recently, there's something called employment ghosting that has been written about a couple times, and it's where uh, folks will say they're showing up for an interview and not show up at all, um, or people who will be actually offered employment, they're scheduled to show up for their first day, arrangements have been made, and they do not show up, only to find out, this employer to find out that they've actually secured employment with another company. Again, amazing tables being turned uh, between the employer and the employee power differential. Many of you, I'm sure, have fallen victim to employers doing that to, uh, to potential candidates, where you've interviewed, gone all the way through, only to be ghosted, not to be hearing anything from that employer. And then when you reach out, you find out that they've filled the position with a different candidate. Again, the power differential has been just a, a fascinating sociological study about the world of work. So if we think about, um, about uh, employee engagement, let's, let's study it from a number of, of angles. Um, in a study by Gallup, it's found that only about 15% of the world's 1 billion workers are actually engaged at work, 15%. You just wonder what the others are doing there, right? Well, there's a fascinating sociological movement happening right now, as I mentioned, uh, called the Big Quit or the Great Resignation, where over 50% of all workers are in search of their next job. For those of you really interested in this, go check out podcast number 17 for the details on that. I, in the show notes, also give you a link to about six or seven various articles that help you understand the phenomenon and why um, the great, uh, great turnover. Culture, the behaviors allowed, recognized, and rewarded in your work environment has a direct impact on employee engagement, of course. Engaged employees are self-motivated. They have a clear understanding of their roles. They recognize the significance of their contribution. They feel like they matter, of course. They focus on future training and development. Really take that personally. They know that that is the key to them advancing in their career. And they feel that they belong to the community. That is the organization. So it could be a team, a department, a division, or of course, an enterprise. So if that is the key, if that's how we want our employees to feel, wouldn't we want to build a culture that highlights those components? So again, here are three simple but not easy steps for redesigning the culture, either in your team, your department, your division, or your company. As I mentioned before, describe it. Get a, hand, get a handle on how employees actually describe your culture. This should be an open-ended free-form text opportunity for employees to tell you about their work experience. Are they challenged? Do they feel safe to challenge the status quo? Do they feel valued? Does their work matter? Do they like their colleagues? Do they see a future for themselves at your company? Do they like and respect their manager? Second, define it. 
spend some time reflecting on the data and then designing the kind of culture you want for your company or your team. That can be a subculture of sorts. How do you want employees, customers, and stakeholders to describe your company or to experience your company, its people, and your products and services? And then third, condition it. Again, this is the heavy lift, the silver bullet of sorts. How does your culture show up in your talent management or your HR practices? It should be woven throughout everything from how you seek out employees and hire them to how you offboard them, if you will, to everything in between. So who are you hiring? Who are you promoting? How are you rewarding? What behavior do you tolerate? How and when are you investing in your employees' growth and development? Um, how and do you celebrate? What do you talk about at all hands meetings or town halls? How do you handle defeat, disappointment, or failure at your company? Is it safe to fail? That's a big one for a lot of the clients that I'm working with right now. How do your people leaders lead their people? How and how often do you coach, guide, and offer feedback? If I were to ask your employees, would they say that they get it regularly or would they say that it's an annual experience? It's also about iconography. Culture is also about the images and the feeling I have when I walk through the halls of your company. I can tell you a lot about your culture by walking past cubicles and offices. What's advertised on the walls? How are cubes and offices decorated? How do people interact? Is there laughter? Is there silence? Early, early in my career, I was assigned to a client, this is uh, way before my GE days, who would not allow any per, uh, personal artifacts in cubicles. No family pictures, no drawings from little ones, no plants, no magnets. They actually had a person who would walk the floors on a Friday once per month requesting that certain cubicles be cleansed of such things. Could you even imagine that today? I'm sure there are some company cultures like that, but I tell you, they won't last because the employees are calling the shots now and they want to uh, bring more of themselves to work. There's a great quote that I learned a long time ago from my friends at Tape Art and it goes something like this. It's okay if you leave your work at work, but it's a shame if you leave yourself at home. And that I think is, is uh, definitely coming to a peak right now as employees everywhere really question how they spend their time at work, how they make their money, what their value is, and the, um, the definition and, and the um, sense of satisfaction they want to get from the, the work that they, um, they put forth. I'm often asked what I believe to be true about culture, which elements I encourage my clients to consider. And here's my short list. And of course, you're more than welcome to give a buzz anytime you have questions. First, I'd recommend, um, which might be a, a bit of a surprise to some of you, but I recommend folks focus deeply on trust and accountability. I'm a Lencioni fan when it comes to this kind of work. This is the work I do the most, be it in my one-on-one -on -one coaching engagements, when I work one to few on team experiences and, and team building um, opportunities, and when I work on senior leadership teams about their culture. The ability to be vulnerable with one another is key. If you really wanna do any of these other cultural things that we've either already talked about or some of the, the um, uh, items I'm gonna be mentioning here in just a second. 
Uh, in Lencioni's case, if I just use his definition, some people think vulnerable is about, you know, giving your deepest, darkest secrets. And that's really not what they're referencing at all. Vulnerability by Lencioni's measure, and you can look up Brene Brown is an, another uh, great expert on vulnerability, is really this concept of, uh, of saying you don't know uh, the answer to a question, of asking for help, of apologizing to one another, of making a mistake, learning from it, sharing your learnings broadly, saying you blew it out loud to allow other people the uh, opportunity to learn from you as well. Um, it's not having all the answers. It's um, not being afraid to start over or to start something new, if you will. So it's this concept of being able to be vulnerable in public um, that we find really helps build trust quickly. So people ask me, how, how, much, how long will it take to, uh, to build trust in my team? You know, I've got a new team. I've got a couple new players. I'm new to the team. And Lencioni's answer, which I fully agree with, is it's, it's not time, but courage that's going to make that trust come to life. And that's going to take effort. Again, it's the work I do the most uh, with clients. And it's such a, a joy to see the tides turn uh, for these folks. The second on my short list of, of elements I would encourage you to, to explore when you're building or rebuilding a culture is to build and strongly consider a learning culture. And what I mean by that is a culture where every employee not only um, is offered, but is expected to take on uh, learning development as a, as a personal attribute, um, to really spend time learning not only their job, but their role um, and uh, their leadership style. Um, I'm going to be spending a bit of time on this one because I, I think if you have this, if you have learning culture, the other cultural elements are just more easily implemented or resolved in some cases. When you have people taking responsibility for their own growth and development, you can't help but all be rowing in the same direction. I find that to be super powerful. I also find that a learning culture is way more powerful than a large learning team. Oftentimes we're throwing more people into a learning team as opposed to setting an expectation of growth and development uh, from uh, our employees. You know, let's be honest, learning has been democratized and commoditized over time. Everybody's got access to learning. The Maasai youngins that I worked with and I was in um, uh, working with uh, in Kenya and in Tanzania had access to education on their flip phone, for goodness sakes. So certainly those of us in um, much more sophisticated environments can access what we need for a pretty nominal, uh, nominal cost. So although everybody has access to learning, not everyone is required to or rewarded for taking advantage of that access. And that's in essence what a learning culture does. So research is showing that technical skills now have a shelf life of between four and seven years. If that does not scare you, it absolutely should, because many of us have made a living based on our technical knowledge, based on knowing what button to push, what paper to pass, what algorithm to run, what decision to make, et cetera, et cetera. So if technical skills have such a short uh, lifespan, you now need to ask yourself, what next? And that is, you need to be constantly learning what's next to be able to evolve with that new timeline. 
specifically, no matter what the technical skill is, you need to be able to apply leadership skills to that. So let's, let's take a moment just to talk about that and unpack that. Things like the ability to scale leadership, to make sure that all of the people around you, below you, above you can rise to the occasion when necessary. You need to uh, uh, have a strong sense of resiliency to create or spot trends in either the industry or the market or your, your customer base. You need to be able to influence outcomes. Again, leadership equals influence. The whole purpose of leadership is to influence, and in this case, influence outcomes. You need to be able to have good judgment, establish good judgment over time through experiences, and again, what you're learning. Topics like human-centered design or design thinking are no longer nice to have bleeding edge approaches to building products and services. They're actually pretty critical and they're critical inputs to designing a culture that puts clients, customers, even employees at the center of the decisions they make and the directions they take. Again, the employees have the upper hand right now. And for any of you with open roles, I'm sure you are trying to rack your brain to figure out what it's going to take to, again, entice uh, the, the best talent uh, to your side of the house. If we think about the next one, um, the third recommendation I have when folks are considering a new cultural definition of sorts, I recommend really looking at bureaucracy. But in this case, I recommend replacing social bureaucracy with sound practices. Let me explain that one a little bit. I've seen quite a few clients over the last four years now with heavy social bureaucracy, and that is getting in their way. Now, there have been many times where my GE background has caused a, a, a few clients to pause. Um, they have assumed that my experience with GE would have me build solutions for them that would be heavy with process and bureaucracy, hugely expensive, very detailed, uh, too heavy uh, for their company. And GE actually taught me the opposite. It taught me to respect process and to and encouraged me to be pragmatic and very, very scrappy with not only my dollars, but my time. Bureaucracy is simply a way of administratively organizing large number of people who need to work together. Even though bureaucracies sometimes seem inefficient or wasteful, setting up a bureaucracy helps ensure that thousands of people can work together in compatible ways, really by defining everybody's role within that context. That's all a bureaucracy is. It gets a bum name, a bum rap, because we abuse it. We forget to check in on it to see if it's still serving us well. Now, some organizations want to ensure their culture is devoid of bureaucracy. Mistake number one. Therefore, they have very few standard processes. Mistake number two. Now, this could work for a while, but eventually something I call social bureaucracy emerges. It's the inability to get work done unless you know, understand, and can navigate the people of your organization. The right person in the right chair can make things really easy for you. The wrong person in the right chair could impact your budget, your timeline, and your overall effectiveness, of course. Now, as a consultant, I see this most often during big decision-making times. Uh, it's during succession planning, talent promotion dialogues, budget dialogues, capital investment decisions. That's when you start to see people like gatekeepers, rule changers, weather impactors. That's when you start to see unpredictable conditions arise, rules you didn't even know existed. That's when folks start to hold back on information where organizations 
lack transparency. Uh, it's where uh, organizations start to look frail to me. They lack sound, repeatable processes. And that's also when you start to see employee attrition rise or the lack of engagement from the employees who stay. That kind of social bureaucracy can cripple an organization, especially organizations who are trying to scale. So be wary of that one and build a culture that protects you from people being able to pull the major levers as opposed to sound systems and processes. Number four on my list is to select three to five behaviors you want to impact and then go all in. What I mean by that is as you're building your culture, don't try to solve for everything. Don't have the 20 different uh, the 20 different um, values and behaviors sliced by level of the company, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, really look at the three to five behaviors that are causing the greatest challenge to you making a huge impact on your ambitions or goals over the next two to three years. So what three to five behaviors are getting in the way of 80% of your goals? Think of it that way. Evolve them as needed. Develop a marketing communications plan around these items. Have, they, have them be the same items up and down the organization, side to side in the organization. Don't worry about levels and conditions and so forth. If your employees can get the basics, if they're that loud, if they're that, um, uh, if they're causing that much of a roadblock, you'll want everybody marching in the same, the same direction. Tell employees exactly what good looks like. Ensure managers um, are coaching and mentoring and offering feedback regularly. And then, of course, the big one, ensure there's accountability for slow adapters or poor performers. Not everybody can handle that kind of change. And you're going to want to make sure that, number one, you create a great why for them, a great business case. But then you also help them understand what they're expected to do to lean into that. And if they can't or won't, I think you need to escort them to the intersection of choice, as we say in my line of, of work. Number five, and a, a big important one, and one that you can do really quite inexpensively is build a system that supports continuous and instant feedback. Um, I saw just an amazing attempt at this uh, at GE in my final years. My manager actually led this effort where uh, she and her team created almost like a texting uh, app, if you will, in which all employees could give any other employee up, down, and sideways in the organization feedback instantly, and it would show up again as like a text on that employee's um, uh, device, phone, iPad, uh, laptop, and so forth. So in this case, think about building some sort of continuous and rather instant feedback loop, be it analog, the old-fashioned way, uh, or uh, uh, through some, some pretty cool technology. Let's talk about employee performance feedback first. Everybody should be assessed. If you are not currently doing that, no matter what the role uh, in your organization, you got to figure that one out. Everybody should be assessed. Everybody should be given transparent feedback on their performance and the gaps in their performance that are impacting their current level of work, or maybe their potential to grow their career. They can't be better if they don't know what they need to do better. And again, you as their employers owe that to them. And quite frankly, that's what folks that are on the hunt for new employment experiences are looking for. They're looking for great, transparent organizations that are help, going to help them be better. And oh, by the way, not just better at work, but better in all areas of their life. 
everyone should be uh, on a development plan of sorts. One to three behaviors or skills agreed upon by their manager that they will commit to develop over the next 12 month, months. Again, it's this whole continuous learning kind of thing that you will want them to, uh, to um, fully buy into. And then rinse and repeat, give um, assessments, give feedback on progress, make sure people know uh, where they stand. If you happen to work for a company um, or a manager that just isn't into this stuff, they don't have formal or sophisticated structures. Maybe your manager doesn't take the time to give feedback or just doesn't feel comfortable doing that. Do not let that stop you. You go seek that out. So let's talk about how you can potentially sense uh, that. If you um, uh, want the feedback, I would ask for it in as a simple email, for example. You can send out a very lovely email saying, hey, what should I start doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I continue doing uh, to be a better leader uh, for our team or at our company? Something as simple as that. If you don't think people are going to be very transparent with you, have a colleague send out the email and collect the responses, put them into a, a, a summary document for you. And that's one way to get your, uh, your, um, uh, your feedback and your insights from your, your peer group. Um, for those of you who want to take it up a notch, don't let people do this anonymously. I am a huge fan for every time I get an assessment to fill out, I would type my written, you know, my uh, comments at the very end of that, usually a Likert scale based quantitative assessment. And I would put my name next to the comment because I want them to know who wrote it. I want them to know who they can come to for additional information. Uh, additional examples, et cetera, et cetera. That was important to me and I made a commitment and I, I asked my teams, any team that worked for me to do the same. I think we owe it to each other to be that transparent. So there's a challenge for you, go for it. Secondly, let's talk about employee engagement. So as I mentioned earlier, culture and employee engagement are intricately connected. Your ability to offer insights on how employees are performing and contributing to your culture is critical. Equally important, though, is your ability to understand how the work culture and climate impacts your employees' willingness to stay engaged in working for you. So many organizations take things like uh, pulse checks through annual engagement surveys. Now, my perspective on those surveys might be somewhat controversial. I did that for a couple of years for one organization, and it is a daunting lift, depending on the size and complexity of your organization, of course. It takes weeks to administer, to synthesize, to study, and then to launch out to the managers. And even then, only if you have a certain number of uh, employees and a certain number of responses from those employees, do you actually get the feedback. And even then, we rarely had the kind of staff needed to follow up on progress made um, on the feedback we got through those engagement surveys. So I tend to, when I work with companies, especially startups or smaller organizations, tell them, skip the heavy lift for now. Just ask one question. How does it feel to work here? Maybe rephrase the question to, what is it like to work here? Maybe a third attempt at that question could be, how do you describe our company to your family over dinner? You will get all the information you need about your culture by asking that one question, whatever variation suits you. So again, go for the quality of the content as opposed to the sophistication of the tool. And I bet you're gonna end up at the very same point. 
So a couple other things to keep in mind here. Timely feedback from employees will help you understand their concerns and resolve those issues instantly. That's what you need to get to. So asking that question maybe a couple times, few times a year could be helpful. It will keep employees and management on the same page as to what's happening in the company. Uh, it'll give them organizational updates. It'll help you understand how people are reacting to organizational changes. All of those sorts of things become helpful, right? Employees can share feedback on any matter of things through public or private chat, photo sharing, and that sort of thing today. So make good use of that. Find a, a means or a mechanism for them to leverage all of that social media that they have today, because I bet you they're putting it out on Glassdoor anyway. Employees will also feel valued and respected that their feedback is being heard and acted upon. But the key there, of course, is the acted upon part. You can also work with real data derived from the feedback rather than assuming you're depending on a gut feeling if you check in with employee engagement. And the collected responses can be formulated into reports and shared with management as actionable insights. You might need to guide them on which insights to pay attention to, but nonetheless, all of that feedback will be there. If you choose the big heavy lift, which some of you do, or if you choose the um, scrappy kind, which is always my style, you might want to investigate tools like Lattice or Tiny Pulse or Kazoo. Those are three of my favorites. Those gather real-time anonymous employee feedback. They get to the root of issues and they give employee a voice. And most of them give an employee a voice instantly, which again, I love. For example, in a couple of those tools, you can actually shoot questions out to your employee population instantly, have them rate on a scale of one to five. How is your work day today? How stressed are you today? Um, how is your manager doing? Again, whatever question might be of interest to you, you can instantly have it pop up on their work, uh, their uh, work laptop or desktop and, and get that feedback. You can also ask an open-ended question, like, are you actively looking for a position outside of the company? Uh, are you challenged in your work? When was the last time you invested in yourself and how can we help? So those sorts of things, again, give you an instant understanding of what's top of mind for your employees. And I'd strongly recommend you take a peek at some of those tools or again, do it the old scrappy way by just asking the question at the beginning of a team meeting, having everybody go around the room to share their feedback and you take copious notes uh, and then do better the next day. So in closing, there are so many things you can do around culture, but you've got to figure out what people think about it today. You've got to define the one you actually want, and then you've got to figure out ways to condition your employees to adapt those new behaviors and value sets. Culture justifies the response. That is just the way it is around here. So whenever somebody says that, you want to get to the bottom of that's just the way it is around here. Respect the role of trust and accountability in an organization. The role of trust and accountability is critical. If people don't trust one another, they aren't going to be vulnerable enough to open themselves up to feedback and coaching and change uh, and doing things uh, better through self-examination. Accountability helps people understand the standards at the organization. Will you allow any behavior or will you hold people to a, an acceptable level of, account of, of uh, performance um, so that, again, the whole organization moves forward? Dedicate yourself to a learning culture. Ensure that every employee is constantly looking to better themselves, their peers, and the people around them by what they know and sharing what they've learned. 
Replace social bureaucracy with sound practices. Don't be afraid of bureaucracy. Just make sure you build the right amount and the right kind. Select three to five behaviors that you want to impact and go all in. Eliminate the noise. You don't need 27. You don't need them sliced by level of the organization. You need some foundational things to change again and expedite the way that you're approaching your goals and ambitions. And then lastly, build a system that supports continuous and instant feedback, be it behavioral like conversations or digital, like some of the tools that I recommended. And most of all, of course, make sure that your culture uh, purports a, a, a level of psychological safety, a strong degree of trust so that folks actually use that opportunity to make each other better. Now, the kind of culture I've described above, the kind of cultural components I've described above, uh, it can help companies design uh, one that's, that puts a leader in every chair. Uh, that's really what this is all about. How can you help everybody leading our future, being ambassadors to the future that we all deserve? Uh, you know that that is one of my favorite sayings, a leader in every chair. Of course, all of this is work that we love to do for our clients. So if you have a need or you know of a need, just give us a call. We'd love to help you build a culture and a work environment where your employees thrive. Give a call, check out the show notes for additional information. Otherwise, until next time, bye for now. Thanks again for listening to the Do I Dare podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. And we'd love to hear from you. DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Share a topic of interest or a struggle that's top of mind for you. We'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. And for more information about Do I Dare and all things leadership, visit KimberlyKlimanLee.com, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and stay tuned for exclusive content access to the tools and resources you need to lead.